0: Hello there, this is Harvey from Double Dare, and you're listening to Verbal Shenanigans. I'm not sure why, but you are. But our shenanigans are cheeky and fun.
1: Yeah, I mean, his shenanigans are cruel and tragic.
2: Which makes them not shenanigans at all, really.
1: Evil shenanigans. I swear to God, I'll pistol whip the next guy that says shenanigans. up space hello everybody welcome on back to the verbal shenanigans podcast uh that is mike i am scott uh mike last week was a was a rough one for you it was a rough um week it felt like your english really failed you uh bits were coming to you during the podcast i'm just uh-huh. wondering how have you recovered during the week? Have you taken the time to do ice baths and the proper uh, PT or or mental health things that you need to be on point for tonight?
2: Well, I, I did a good eight hours of sleep last night. I feel great coming into the day, and I prepared nothing, so I have nothing to worry about. You saying you got anything? So
1: nice. There you so go. The, you're back to your prime. You're back to your <laughs> prime. <laughs> it's actually, I'd have something,
2: but we got other stuff going on, so. <laughs>
1: But I am excited to be back, so welcome on back to the show. Um, If you tuned in last week, you found out that the moon might not be real from Jason Goldwatch, who is a a music video producer for some of the greats, uh, Uh Morrell, Kanye West, a a bunch of things. Um, We we ended up down a deep dive uh, on whether or not the moon is real. Mike, have you had a week to digest on what your thoughts are?
2: I mean, I was looking up there, and it seems sort of real to me uh, uh, i i looked at it through telescopes in various times in my life and nothing comes to mind where i'm like i don't know about this so I- i'm still on pro moon right now i got a <laughs> moon final answer
1: yes okay pro moon i am also pro moon um we're gonna get a lot of a lot of crap from the the alt moon uh community but the me and mike, mool. Me, yeah. me 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 and mike are pro moon so mike um i thought um you know we're we're at it's funny because when we started the podcast i would say we were tech forward like a podcast was kind of new right Mm -hmm. it was still it was it was still in the the birthing of podcasts i would Mm -hmm. say when we came out we were technically a little late to like blow up but we were starting to like early on where no one really had one. There was a couple out there, right? Yeah. Like
2: out of curiosity, when your wife's going to get birth in a couple months, are so you going to be like, this is just like a podcast, babe? It's it's a, it's a one for one. Just push it out. Come on. I was what do you got to promote?
1: I was thinking the opposite. Maybe we podcast during it.
2: I mean, I'm fine. I mean, yeah. yeah. I'll I'll keep my uh, microphone on top of her belly, and yeah. I'll just be like, "Don't move it,
1: okay?" No, I thought about bringing the cat. Like, well, I'll just I'll just zoom you into the into the emergency room. and Be like, "No, oh, I got to
2: be there, bro."
1: Okay, Are you gonna. I got to be there. Right. I mean,
2: I need solid proof. I still think the first one was born on my birthday to mm-hmm. to create the blood midnight and all that good stuff. But since if you want me to verify your child was not born on my birthday i gotta be there this time all right
1: all right all right all right but um now like we're in a realm where we're kind of dinosaurs at this point right i would i i mm-hmm. think like we don't fully do video we post some video here and there mm-hmm. we don't do we don't go live ever which is stuff we know deep down we don't do TikTok, mm-hmm. um which we've we've made moves to try to do but we just you know we're old right it's true so, and this is this is like hard to find the time to do these things
2: okay yeah it's uh when it's not your full time job you don't have the urgency to go i absolutely need to do this right no. now
1: now i have not i know you set up a tiktok page for us but we haven't done anything with that like no i would love if i logged in and found like you doing all the viral dances and like all the stuff that like Imagine I logged in and you had like millions of followers and it was just all you like dancing and then the next video like shitting on your co-host, like telling secrets yeah. about me and um is there just something
2: drop, you... I'm just like shaking my booty say drop it burr low. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That that
1: that's my TikTok name, burlow. See, this is why I'm saying we're we haven't evolved because you've been mm-hmm. you've been you've been finding a nickname for, for ten years now. You've been trying to 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 uh, to throw a nickname in there,
2: that, that is that is true. I've, I've I've had a few in this decade, and all I still can't remember why I'm Pilgrim Mike. But no, uh, I I actually don't I, I get reminded that of that every once in a while from Groovy Joan.
1: So I decided to um we're gonna step into the future here a little bit. Ooh. Okay, um you know AI is everywhere. We like I've said before, we let AI right at the table. Like it just all of a sudden now it's just like everything's AI like. It was definitely just like uh all the big companies had it and we're just waiting for the first one to be like here's AI and now now we have it for everything. But I wanted to start simple and I wanted to look us up a little bit on 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 AI, okay? Mm. I said verbal shenanigans, what is it? It said it's either a a general term, less likely but verbal shenanigans can also be used as a more general term to describe playful or mischievous use of language. Okay, or it's B, a comedy podcast. This is most likely meaning you, the meaning you encountered. Uh, That doesn't even sound right, but it's a show featuring hosts Scott Brennan and Michael Burlew, who chat with a variety of guests from artists and athletes to chefs and even hippo tax survivors. The show is known for its comical banter, funny games. Um, and engaging interviews, you could find it on various platforms like Apple Podcast, Amazon Audible, which I don't think is a platform. Um, and no, there were-
2: Amazon does have podcasts. I put yeah, that link out
1: there. Yeah, but I don't think it's Amazon Audible. I think it's Amazon and then audible.com.
2: Comma, Audible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And- I don't listen on either, so what's the point?
1: So <laughs> I wrote, tell me more about the podcast. <laughs> it says delving deeper into verbal <laughs> shenanigans. Scott Brennan. Known for his quick wit and ability to keep the conversation flowing. Mike, would you uh how would you assess that?
2: I'd say fairly decent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you generally are the one to pick up on my mistakes and extend the conversation in parts I don't
1: like it going to, but yeah. Okay. Mike Berlew offers a more laid back observational humor style, often often providing comedic counterpoints to Scott. I think that's fairly straightforward, yeah. That's not bad, right? That's not bad. Okay. Format. Guest-driven episodes. Each week features a new guest from diverse backgrounds, bringing unique perspectives and stories to the show. Past guests include artists, athletes, chefs, entrepreneurs, and even a hippo attack survivor. All true. All true. It seems to be emphasizing chefs a lot. I don't know (laughs) why AI is really into that, but... Uh, comical banter. The host interactions and playful jabs are a core element of the show's humor. Mike, how are you feeling with AI's assessment of us so far? I, I kind of like it so far. No, I like I, it. So I've, AI's I, dead, I, AI is making us yeah, sound pretty good. Actually. Very good, Watson. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, funny games. The hosts and guests often participate in lighthearted games and challenges added in another layer of entertainment we're just piling layers of entertainment on here mike Mm. okay
2: it's like a lasagna (laughs) we're a comedy lasagna right here
1: yeah which was the original name for the podcast but you know
2: yeah some italian group already had it and all were very upset
1: (laughs) welcome to comedy lasagna Uh, (laughs) that's some dumb improv group out of like chicago (laughs) or something Um, engaging interviews, the host conduct insightful and entertaining interviews, allowing guests to share their stories and perspectives. I think we do that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still on with this machine. Yeah. The overall tone, lighthearted and humorous, conversational, conversational and relatable, open-minded and inclusive. I, Mike, AI loves us so far. That's one thing that loves us. Yeah. Yeah and then it provides our um our our, uh, our links after that. I was like, wow. Hmm. It said the show's been running for several years with a large archive of episodes to explore. Um yeah. So how you you're good with this so far? Yeah, I'm uh, very on board with how the
2: computers think we are.
1: Okay. Now, I asked AI after this, does Michael mess up his English? Okay. While Michael on verbal shenanigans doesn't necessarily mess up his English in a grammatical sense, he does have a distinct speaking style that might per- be perceived as, as such by some listeners. Here's a breakdown. What Michael does. Informal language. He often uses informal language slang and contractions, which can sound less formal than standard English. Unique pronunciations. He might have certain pronunciations or word choices that differ from the standard way of speaking. Mispronunciations. Occasionally he might mispronounce words which can be seen as messing up his English. Mm, yeah. Playful delivery. He often uses playful and humorous tone in his speech, which can sometimes involve exaggerating pronunciations or using non standard phrasing for comedic effect. Mike, where do we stand? I mean, I think it's spot on. As everybody
2: knows, you know, (laughs) there's the real Michael Berlew and the character Michael Berlew. And clearly, the AI could decipher between the two. They know my formal speaking is immaculate. But once in a while, I like to mess up a couple verbs or contrasts as uh, the AI stated in order to add to the humor of the show. (laughs) (laughs)
1: which made me laugh. I was wondering if AI is just saying like, like there's no way they, I don't think there's any way AI knows our podcast. If they're Mm -hmm. just saying like, yeah, Michael does this mistake. Or if there's some way AI is like, yeah, he does (laughs) actually mess this up. Um, It says, what what, do you want to hear what you don't do? Mm. What Michael doesn't do. Michael does not make consistent grammatical errors. While his speech might be informal or contain occasional mispronunciations, he generally doesn't make consistent grammatical errors that hinder understanding. I don't hinder. No, I don't don't. hinder. Uh, Lack fluency. You don't lack fluency. Despite his unique style, Michael is fluent and articulate in communication. The fluency and
2: articulations
1: are all in point. Yep. Overall, Michael's speaking style adds to the show's casual and humorous atmosphere. Whether you perceive it as messing up, his English depends on your individual perspective and expectations of formal speech. Some listeners might find it charming and relatable, where others might prefer a more standard and formal speaking style. Mike... Well, how do you feel about AI's assessment of you?
2: I may hire AI as my <laughs> lawyer if I ever have to go to court. Like, if anybody questions me, I'm like, no, 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 hold up. Let me get Jet GPT on the line. I got this.
1: <laughs> now, Mike, I, I couldn't go without um, asking AI about myself, obviously. Oh, obviously. Okay. Is Scott Brennan a good host was the question I asked AI. Um, uh, my strengths, would you like to hear some of them? May as well. quick wit and humor. Scott is known for his sharp wit and ability to deliver jokes and observations in a humorous way. An engaging conversationalist, he keeps the conversation flowing, asking interesting questions and actively listening to guests. ability to connect with guests, he creates a comfortable and welcoming atmosphere, allowing guests to relax and share their stories openly and his improvisational skills. He can think on his feet and adapt to unexpected situations keeping the show dynamic and flowing. Mike, how do you feel about my positives? I think they're, what, quite on point?
2: Uh, They're Uh, articulates. I I feel we've been trying to sell this program to humans for too (laughs) long, it seems. AI
1: is killing it right now. Uh, Yeah. Now, would you like to hear AI's assessment of me, my weaknesses? Wow. We, we got the tip. Let's go to the tap. Yes, we got the tip. Yes, we got the tip. Um, he dominates the conversation. Some listeners might find that Scott sometimes dominates the conversations, mm-hmm. leaving less room for guests to share their thoughts and experiences. Oh, tough one there. Tough one. Mm-hmm. He can be overly playful. His playful and energetic style might not resonate with everyone, and some listeners might find it distracting or immature at times. Mm -hmm. We've had discussions about your maturity, my friend. That Mm -hmm. is true. That is true. Um, His subjective humor. Humor is subjective, and not everyone will find Scott's jokes uh, or observations funny. No. No, no, we we had to have
2: that conversation with Aisha Ash over your bit from like seven years ago, so yes.
1: clearly you haven't worked your way from that. So overall, though, AI thinks Scott Brennan is a competent and entertaining mm-hmm. host who brings humor and energy to the show. Whether he's considered a good host depends on individual preferences for humor style, conversational dynamics, and overall podcast experience. I don't know, Mike. I I feel, I feel like if someone left that review about us, mm-hmm. I would take that. That's a pretty damn good review. Yeah the the
2: the cons at the end they were kind of calling you a flavor of the week a little bit. They were there. they were. Uh, but oh uh, no, I mean I probably would bring that out to like an eighty five percent, and I, I would soundly use that and all. I mean, I I feel we have to build a poster where it's just like chat AI says about verbal shenanigans.
1: No. Which is funny because we have a couple like loyal listeners. They don't give us that kind of feedback. They don't tell yeah. me um, I'm overly playful. You know, yeah. like <laughs> yeah.
2: Dom, you haven't contacted me and talked about the fluency <laughs> of my voice in quite some time. I got to be honest with you, man. I, I don't appreciate it.
1: Now, Mike, I decided to take this episode of the podcast a little bit further. Okay? Oh, really? Down the AI road. Okay? Mm. Now, every year we do a little tournament, okay? Mm-hmm. We we call it God Complex, okay? That's where right? I have to bring someone back from the dead. Okay. That's right. Um who who died in the prior year. So this year Jerry Springer won after a re-recording uh originally where Bob Barker won, but Basically right. the matchups it's all about conversation and figuring out why it would bring someone back. Um Dom grilled our friend Dom grilled me over not bringing back Tina Turner. Um a little, was, controversial, yeah. little controversial, yeah. A um, Little controversial, yeah. I mean it's always controversial cuz I have to eliminate people that everyone would like back or or most people. Occasionally there's a guy I'm like yeah, get rid of him. I don't I don't care about that guy. Yeah,
2: my wife brings up the year you basically got rid of Chadwick Boseman in the second round and she was pissed off with that. So it happens for sometimes it all you depends can, on the match. You can't
1: up. please everyone. Just like God oh. can't please everyone. Now, Mike, I have decided, um, I have brought back all the past winners of the God complex show. Okay. Okay. And just a review. Um, so this year was Jerry Springer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we have now Jerry Springer. Bob Barker is not in this competition. Uh, Pele, DMX, Little Richard, Mean Gene Okerlund, Anthony Bourdain, Tom Petty, and astronaut John Glenn. Okay. okay. So there's eight, which is convenient. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a different kind of tournament for you, Mike. Okay. okay. Now, I have put these people in a... Um, what would you say an imaginary fight through ai okay gotcha now i would like you to decide i would like to see if you can figure out if ai decided this guy won or this guy won so i want to see how well you do in this tournament okay now just to
2: confirm you're basically telling ai there's like a celebrity death match who wins
1: exactly okay gotcha okay um and now we have scenarios okay now i bracketed them due to years so last year's winner fights the winner from the before year before okay um and then so on and so on so mike i'm curious if you can if you can beat ai if you could basically Mm. figure out um who would win and why um so here we go all right um uh, Mike, the first matchup in the um <laughs> the AI, I don't know what come up with the name of this real quick. Uh can we just ask AI to come up with the name?
0: <laughs> All
1: right. The AI tournament of death, we're gonna call this. Mm. Um we have A R I P. Yes, exactly. Um we have Jerry Springer versus mm. Pele. Okay, Mike. If you were a betting man, who is going to win this match? Uh, A straight death match, it's got to be
2: Pele. I mean, soccer is literally the number one athletes in the world. He was the best at it for at least a decade. I mean, maybe even more years than that. Uh, Just endless running up and down, international, traveling, doing the same thing, being the best. Uh, Jerry always had to rely on Steve to save his rear end when a fight broke out. He'd be scurrying off set and all. as people were screaming his name, even though he did nothing except for starting the fight. So I am going to say Pele survives.
1: Would you like to hear how it plays out? It'd be kind of silly if we didn't. All right. This setting, a makeshift arena with a soccer field at its center, surrounded by a ring for hand-to-hand combat. Okay. All right. Round one, the soccer showdown. The fight begins with a soccer match between Pele and Jerry Springer. Pele showcases his unparalleled skill, dribbling past Jerry effortlessly and scoring goal after goal. Despite Springer's enthusiasm, he struggles to keep up, often tripping over the ball or kicking it in the wrong direction. Pele wins the round decisively, demonstrating why he's considered one of the greatest soccer players of all time. Okay. Round two, hand-to-hand combat. After the soccer match, the rules switch to -to hand-to-hand combat. Pelé, though known for his agility and athleticism on the field, is out of his element in the physical fight. However, Jerry Springer surprises everyone with his unexpected strength and tenacity. He lunges at Pelé with wild punches, catching the soccer legend off guard. Despite Springer's aggression, Pele manages to use his agility to evade most of the blows, delivering quick jabs and kicks whenever he sees an opening. However, Springer's relentless assault begins to take its toll on Pele, who starts to show signs of fatigue. Just when it seems like Springer might gain the upper hand, Pele taps into his years of athletic training and delivers a swift, well-placed kick, knocking Jerry Springer to the ground. The referee counts to 10, declaring Pele the winner of the hand-to-hand combat round. Overall winner, Pele. All right. While Jerry puts up a valiant effort, Pele's combination of soccer prowess, athleticism ultimately proved too much for him to overcome. Mike, you're one for one. How did you feel about the first round? Did it catch you off guard at all?
2: Uh, I was a little surprised by the twist there saying, oh, Jerry's got a few moves. I thought it was going to do something where it's like one of his guests help him or something like that, but uh, the logic prevailed, so I'm one for one. So let's keep this
1: going. (laughs) All right, Mike. In a match Mm. of icons here, you have Little Richard versus DMX. Ooh. Little Richard versus DMX.
2: I'm going to go for a little bit of an upset here, I think. I think Lil Richard, I mean, even though he kind of, kind of comes off frilly and stuff like that, he got a little attitude to him. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you really challenge his attitude, that he's got another level that we never really seen before. Right. So I'm calling for the upset. I think that Little Richard would slap the taste out of
1: DMX's mouth. All right. Are you ready for match two? Here we go. The setting, a dimly lit underground club pulsating with the rhythm of hip-hop beats and rock and roll classics. So you got both both crowds. Mm. The crowd buzzes with anticipation as DMX and Little Richard stand face-to-face in the center of the room, surrounded by cheering spectators. Round one, the showdown begins. With tension thick in the air, DMX and Little Richard exchange heated words, each refusing to back down. Suddenly, without warning, DMX launches himself at Little Richard with a fierce punch. Little Richard, taken aback but un- undeterred, swiftly dodges the blow with surprising agility, showcasing moves honed from years of performing on the stage. Okay, Little Richard, mm. little, you know, mm. he- he's swift. He's swift. sassy. I yep. told you. Round two, a clash of styles. As the fight intensifies, it becomes a clash of styles. DMX relies on brute force and aggression, swinging wildly at Little Richard, who evades each attack with graceful footwork. Oh, damn. Yeah. You know, Little Richard, though not as physically imposing as DMX, utilizes speed and agility to his advantage, ducking and weaving around his opponent's strikes. With each passing moment, the crowd becomes increasingly captivated by the spectacle unfolding before them. Some cheer for D- DMX, drawn to his raw intensity, while others rally behind Little Richard, inspired by his resilience and flair. Mike, wh- what do you think right now? The match is, is pretty strong. It's a 50-50 matchup. I kind of like this. It can go either direction. All right. Round three, the turning point. In a moment of opportunity, DMX manages to land a solid blow on Little Richard, staggering him momentarily. Seizing the chance to press his advantage, DMX moves in for the finishing blow. But just as he prepares to strike, Little Richard summons an unexpected burst of energy, channeling the spirit of his rock and roll roots. With a lightning-fast counterattack, Little Richard delivers a series of precise strikes, catching DMX off guard. Despite his fierce determination, DMX finds himself overwhelmed by Little Richard's unexpected ferocity. In this scenario, the unyielding spirit and surprising agility of Little Richard prove to be the deciding factors in the fight. Despite DMX's aggression, Little Richard's resilience wins the match. Mm.
2: Like I said, man, the He's like a little chihuahua, man. You As much as you're like, I'm stronger and larger, you don't want to get it mad, man, because it's going to yap you off.
1: Mike, you're two for two. How are you feeling about the competition so far?
2: I, I kind of like what I'm seeing so far. I think AI's got us a, a good little story right there, but uh, in, I know these computers well, so I can think <laughs> just like them.
1: Yes, yes, you are half computer. You're basically a Terminator. Mm-hmm. That's um true. so in a really interesting matchup, Mike, we have Mean Gene Okerlund versus Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, Mike, uh, you have a prediction on the winner? Hmm.
2: I'm gonna go with my gun. I'm gonna say Anthony Bourdain. From logic sense, he was in good shape. He traveled the world. He he basically ate and swallowed anything that came in his way. So his body faced many obstacles. Mean Gene was always next to big strong men, but he was never the big strong man. I like so
1: it. I like your logic, but let's see how it plays out. All right. The setting: a bustling kitchen stadium. Ooh. Transformed into an arena for head to head combat. Oh, man. The aroma of spices and sizzling meats fills the air as spectators gather around, eager to witness the clash between two unlikely contenders. Round one, culinary combat. The fight begins with a culinary challenge with Mean Gene Okerlund and Anthony Bourdain. Also, this has to be the first time AI has ever typed this, ever. Okay. By the way, has anybody ever searched Mean Gene Okerlund and Anthony Bourdain in the same sentence?
2: I don't know what people prefer sexually-wise, so I'm not going to answer that.
1: So, Mean Gene and Anthony are tasked with preparing their signature dishes under intense time pressure. Mean Gene, known for his charismatic, uh, charismatic presence and quick wit, opts for a classic Midwestern food dish, why Bourdain chooses to showcase his culinary expertise with a complex food creation as the timer ticks down. Mean Gene struggles to keep up with Bourdain's lightning fast knife skills and creative flair in the kitchen. Despite his best efforts Mean Gene's dish falls short in comparison to Bourdain's culinary masterpiece, earning Bourdain the victory in the culinary round. Mike, so far you are, you're right there. Doing good. Let's keep going. Verbal sparring. Following the culinary challenge, Mean Gene and Bourdain engage in a battle of words, trading jabs and witty retorts. Mean Gene, accustomed to hyping up wrestling matches with his colorful commentary, tries to rattle Bourdain with his trademark bravado. However, Bourdain, renowned for his sharp wit and eloquence, effortlessly parries Mean Gene's verbal assaults with clever comebacks and insightful commentary. As the verbal sparring heats up, the crowd roars with laughter and applause, thoroughly entertained by the spectacle unfolding before them. Okay. Mm. Round three. With tensions running high, the fight transitions to -to hand-to-hand combat. Mean Gene, fueled by the determination and desire to prove himself, charges at Bourdain with fist-raised. Bourdain, though not known for his physical prowess, surprises everyone with his agility and quick reflexes, dodging Mean Jean's attack with ease. Despite Mean Jean's relentless assault, Bourdain manages to outmaneuver him at every turn, delivering precise strikes and well-timed encounters. In a stunning display of skill, Bourdain incapacitates Mean Jean, pinning him to the ground and emerging victorious in the physical competition, the winner. Anthony Bourdain, Mike, how mm-hmm. do you feel?
2: Three, four, three. Like I, I said, it's my, unbelievable. My mind is a computer. I won with the AI. This is easy.
1: Bring us to the last round of the first round, the last match of the first Ooh. round, okay? Which, tough one. Tom Petty versus John Glenn, Mike. Mm. Tom Petty versus John Glenn, the astronaut. Who you got?
2: Hmm. i'm a little torn in this one because the way ai is going I, i'm imagining there's some kind of rock concert on the moon so right there off the bat, we got controversy right there
1: if the moon exists
2: yes yeah, exactly and that would be like the home field advantage for john glenn right but i just got a sneaking suspicion that tom petty's got something he went a long way hell the guy was officially dead. We were talking about him dead just to get an hour later. Nope, he's still alive kind of moment. Granted, he went back to death, but I feel like you can't keep that man down for a long time, so I'm going with Tom Petty.
1: Or would you say he won't back, back down? down? Yeah. All
2: right. No, I wouldn't. Why, why would this, you say that? This
1: setting, a futuristic space station orbiting high above the Earth. Transformed into an arena for a unique battle between two vastly different individuals. The weightlessness of space adds an extra layer of challenge to the impending showdown. Mike, you nailed that part. Mm-hmm. The Zero Gravity Showdown. As the fight commences, Tom Petty and John Glenn find themselves floating in the vast expanse of space, their movements unrestricted by gravity. Tom Petty, known for his cool demeanor and rock star charisma, Utilizes his agility to navigate the weightless environment with ease, launching himself towards John Glenn with surprising speed. John Glenn, though accustomed to physical combat in space, draws upon his experience as an astronaut to adapt to zero gravity environment with calculated precision. He maneuvers effortlessly, evading Tom Petty's attacks and looking for an opportunity to strike back. So far, 50-50 here. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As the battle intensifies, both competitors assess their unique skills and resources. Tom Petty, channeling the energy of his rock and roll spirit, conjures makeshift weapons. Uh, conjures makeshift weapons from musical instruments floating nearby, using guitar strings as makeshift lassos and drumsticks as projectiles. Of course, they're floating in space, you know. Yeah. Meanwhile, John Glenn uses his astronaut training to his advantage, employing specialized equipment and tools from the space station to his advantage. With quick thinking and resourcefulness, he improvises makeshift shields and propels himself, the jet thrusters, to outmaneuver Tom Petty's attacks. Oh, man. I mean, there is no I want no this winner. to be
2: a movie, by the way. We, yeah, we, yeah.
1: Can, we, can we sanction this? We do know weekly world news. This is this, yeah. this could be one. Yeah, and that'll be the sequel to Moon Jail. But continue. Yeah, in a climactic moment, the battle reaches its zenith as Tom Petty and John Glenn face off in a decisive showdown. With determination in their eyes, they exchange blobs in a flurry of movement. Each refusing to back down, despite Tom Petty, Petty's rock star bravado and John Glenn's prowess, neither competitor emerges. <laughs> To clear Victor, instead they reach a mutual understanding and respect for each other's strengths, choosing to end the confrontation on amicable return, uh, amicable terms. The winner, mutual respect. A tie, a tie, Mike, a, a tie. tie, a tie. How could you? Ah, oh, that's terrible. Now,
2: Mike, imagine the the Super Bowl when. The Chiefs kicked that field goal in four seconds. Everybody's like, all right, tie. They both split the trophy half a year.
1: (laughs) Now, Mike, um, it's funny because before this, I determined a winner when I saw the outcome of this. Okay. Okay. Um, So for you to go four for four with the tie... Who do you think really deserves to go on to the tournament? So there's a tie. We're now going to, like, the association. We're going to figure out who is the winner. Mike, who do you think I picked? Who did you pick? So
2: this is basically if we were doing the tournament, who you would have picked between John Glenn exactly.
1: and This is the newest twist. Um, Ooh, okay. Um,
2: the way I look at it is... Having somebody who's been on the moon is obviously very cool, very interesting, very long conversation. I'm looking at this from a podcast standpoint, but I feel where it would be more exciting, where it would be more enjoyable, where you would have more discussions that came close to your life would be to have Tom Petty on the show. So I am going to lean towards my initial pick of Tom Petty.
1: Mike, you are murdering this tournament right mm-hmm. now. Tom Petty was the one I picked to go on. I uh, went to judges review and Tom Petty got the pass in the AI tournament of death or whatever we're calling this. Uh, Mike, you are Damn. four for freaking swept four. the first round <laughs> swept, swept no choice. Now, Mike, how do you feel about the matchups? Are you are you entertained by, by these battles?
2: Uh, I, I gotta say, these these uh, computer systems, they it's not like the cute little two sentence nope, oh uh, Tom Petty hit uh John Glenn with a guitar and wins or something to that effect. I mean the just the amount of detail that's involved is making it quite enjoyable right now. Oh.
1: Mike, when I was doing this, I was like entertained reading the results and figuring out the tour. I I was on the edge of my seat, you know, (laughs) like I know who the winner is, and I'm curious if you will pick the winner. So, Mm um, let's find out. Like, um, you have four people left in the I don't know, in the weird world that we live in in verbal shenanigans that we Mm -hmm. made a tournament out of a tournament. Um, out of people that are not living and probably for people that don't really listen either. So if they're tuning in, they're like, what the hell mm-hmm. are we listening to? But um, we're going to con- conclude the the tournament after our, our guest here. So we figured it's a little bit of guest time here. So, Mike, uh, who we got on the show tonight?
2: Uh, well, Scott, tonight we are talking to a man named John Harvey. Now, off the bat, you might I don't believe I've heard this person before, but you probably have heard his voice before. If you were growing up in Philadelphia in like the 80s, he was RV in the morning on the radio. If you were a Nickelodeon fan, he was the announcer on both Double Dare and Finders Keepers. Uh, He has been in the entertainment business for quite a while. And we actually got him by me finding his uh, hardware store slash uh, home improvement shop. But, uh, quite an interesting interview. We are talking with John Harvey or Harvey from double dare.
0: Let's get him on the line. <laughs> I and feel free to call me Harvey. You you can, <laughs> everyone does that. That was how I was going to start off
2: this. It, uh, like every time I try to, uh, research people, uh, yeah. the, the most astonishing thing was you have different first name to me. That's yeah. what really drove me nuts. And I. In fact, when you replied back to my, yeah, I'll do the podcast, I sent out so many, I forgot who you were, and then when I Googled, the first thing came up was a British author. Uh, So I was very confused for about 10 minutes on why I sent an author to get on the show.
0: There's a a few John Harveys in IMDb, so like six or seven of them. So I, I forget what number I am, number four, number five, I don't know.
1: Where would you rank yourself as far as John Harvey's? Would you consider yourself the the, the, the top, or are you in the top three well, at least?
0: In my own mind, I'm very near the top. Uh, <laughs> but that's because I'm the one I know the best, and frankly, like the most. So, <laughs> yeah. so Harvey, thank you so
2: much for coming on to our show. Um, sure. I mean, you've been the voice of, like, my childhood very on. So it's always awesome to get a somebody on the show like this. Uh, I guess I want to start off with this. I was researching you. I, I found an amazing. This story. Can you tell people your first college major due to alphabetical order?
0: <laughs> wow. You did some research there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, uh, I'm a senior in high school. I'm a rock star. And uh, you can't tell it from looking at me now, but I was going to be one of the biggest rock stars ever in my mind. Again, like ranking the John Arby's, right? (laughs) So, I don't know, January, February of my senior year in high school, right? My guidance counselor calls me in, and I've never met her before i'll always remember mrs thompson god bless mrs thompson she saved me from the scrap heap of history because she said what are your plans and i said well i'm in the band you know the band we're the most popular band in high school and <laughs> uh, you know, so i'm gonna be a musician she said i think maybe you want a backup plan and i said okay, what would you like me to do? She said, how about going to school? I said, okay, where would you like me to go? She said, Westchester is nearby. Westchester was then not a university quite yet. It was Westchester State College. And she said, Westchester's nearby. So I said, great, um, get me an application. I'll fill it out. You had to fill out the application and declare a major. They were in alphabetical order. So I was an anthropology major for two years until I discovered that I, Just on the surface, it sounds so interesting. Studying it, it was just awful, just the worst. (laughs) The only thing that I had in common with anthropologists is we all had beards. That's it. So, um, (laughs) so after two years of really being misplaced, I'm looking, I'm at the library at Westchester, and I'm looking through college catalogs, and I see. A major at ohio university in athens ohio and it's a radio tv film major and i'm reading the courses and it's like you know film editing recording sound shooting in color television shooting in black and white television There was still black and white back in the early 70s and um and i'm thinking every course sounded interesting so i applied to ohio university and to temple university and you know i'm a philadelphia born and bred kind of guy so i got into both amazingly because my grades as an anthro major were just horrible i'll share this with you my first grade point average first semester where i flunked every first exam of four courses my grade point at the end of the first semester was 0.69 and I worked my ass off to get that up to a one point six, nine two years. <laughs> and I worked hard to get from point six, nine to one point six, nine. But anyway, so I got into Ohio university and the temple Ohio university was like 14 or $1,700 a year for tuition and, uh, or, or no per semester. And Temple was 435 a semester. I remember the number because I worked in the summers, I mowed grass in a state park, and I made enough to put myself through college. Like, no one can do that today. But at 435 a semester, I chose Temple, and I was a commuter. So I always told people I really didn't go to college. I went to like 15th and 16th grade because I was a commuter, you know. But again, my senior year in college, and I have no plans. I've never had any plans in my life. This is not the way to do it, kids. This is the wrong way. But I'm horrible at like, what What am I going to be doing in a year, five years, 10 years? I just don't know. I've never known. What I'm good at is, is I'm good at making the most out of what I stumble into and I'm reasonably good at trying to put myself out there so that I'm bouncing into other molecules and, and trying to identify, Oh, that might be something that I'd be interested in. Anyway, I'm a senior and uh, college and I meet my, you know, counselor, uh, my advisor never met him in the two years I was at temple and he says, what are your plans? And I said, thinking, well, you know, I got another semester to go because I was a transfer student. And he said, you know, you're only two credits short of graduating. I just never figured I would get caught up. And I went, really? (laughs) He said, yeah, that's He said, that's dumb to come back for a whole semester. He said, do a special project. Pitch me on something, and I'll do a two-point special project with you. So I pitched him on doing a 15-minute documentary on Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, and he bought it. And I did a 15-minute, and I have no record of it, no copy of it. But I can assure you it was terrible because my first first year – two years on the radio in philadelphia were terrible and i do have documentary proof of that because i got the tapes anyway he gave me two credits for this 15 minute radio documentary i graduated and i had made one friend in college and he knew the program director at a local radio station in philadelphia he said you know, ha- I need a newsman for the weekend to have him bring a tape and a resume. Well, I didn't have a resume because all I'd done was mow Grass. I didn't have a tape because I'd never <laughs> been on the air in my life. I'd never done anything. So I went into the studios at Temple University, uh, wrote up some news from the newspaper, put it on a reel-to-reel, big seven-inch reel-to-reel, and took it over to the program director. And he was so desperate for a warm body he said, can you start this weekend? And I did, and I'd never been on the air in my life. I missed the first newscast. It was about 45 seconds of dead air. I run a sprint from the back of the uh, station up to the on-air booth. It was a kind of station that ran kind of automated. The only person at the station was me. And so I'm 40 minute, forty seconds late for the newscast. I've just run a 100-yard dash, and I am not in good shape. I have a minute and a half of what's supposed to be a three-minute newscast written, and I'm scared to death. Well, I turn off the mic after getting through a minute and a half of news, forgetting to read the weather, just starting the next oldie reel or whatever. And I look over at the phone, and it's like dead, nothing. I went, oh thank god the program director wasn't up yet about 10 minutes later the phone rings with a little red light and says uh this is roy what happened and i said well i i was i wasn't finished writing and i was in the back of the station and uh, i'll be on time for the next newscast and he said and for every newscast hereafter slam so that was my start in showbiz and i i mean i have that tape of the first newscast and when i say i was terrible it's not false modesty it's not exaggeration i was just god awful there was no discernible talent in this kid at all because i'd never done it and it wasn't a natural skill set my son and i were talking about it and he said that in a way that was a, a a service to me because I didn't have that sort of natural, sort of glib, polished sort of thing. Some people just have that presentational sort of sheen and I didn't. And so I had to learn from scratch how to be interesting, because trust me, I was not interesting at the beginning. I would <laughs> he sounded awful. So I put it all together and I j ju- it was patchwork. And the, he let me let he kept me for two weekends in the daylight hours seven to three and instead of firing me which he should have done he saved my career i wouldn't i don't think i would have gotten it together to start all over and because i'm not very motivated if you're getting the drift here (laughs) but he didn't fire me he put me in the graveyard shift so i worked 11 (laughs) at night until seven in the morning and I learned how to write news and read newscasts. And within six months, I realized I hate reading news. This is awful. And so I kept bugging him. Come on, Roy, let me jock. I want to jock. Come on, Roy, let me jock. And we were like a easy listening elevator kind of station. And then we changed to disco in about 1975. And he, he called me in. he said, okay, you want to jock? You've got the midnight to six a m show six nights a week, midnight to six a m. And there were the hot fourteen disco songs. And so <laughs> six nights a week, I played Kung Fu fighting three times a night. <laughs> thinking it was going to be my dream job again, just like with the news, I wanted to kill myself. <laughs> um, and then, you know, then, they fired the program director who saved my ass. They changed the format to progressive freeform album oriented radio where the jock picks the music and gave me the nighttime show, which was sort of considered prime time then seven to midnight on an album station. And I learned how to do it there for a couple of years, and then they the morning guy quit. And the, and this was before mornings were ever successful on FM. They really weren't a thing. AM radio still was dominant, right? Hmm. And the program director said, you think you can get up at 4.30 in the morning? And I went, I guess so. He said, okay, you got the morning show. It's like, oh, no. Once again, it's like, no, no. Morning guys are funny. And are they're entertaining. They're amusing. They got to be really good. It's yeah. like, it's not me and so the first thing i did was i surrounded myself with stand up comics back then every stand up it was a good source of income for stand ups they put out record after record after record and so i played all these comedy albums and it honest to God, it was like going to comedy college. I just I listened to it. How did they do that? How did they set that up? Why is that funny? Why did he use that word instead of the other? And so I kind of went to comedy college on the air, learning how to do it, and I was pretty, pretty bad, even after what three or four years. but eventually I caught on a little bit more. i did the study of why things worked, and I started telling my own stories and, and talking. And I, you know, and again, because I wasn't naturally gifted at it for that reason, I think, and some other just strokes of luck, it connected with the audience. And within a year I'd gone to like number one in the ratings and was only the second FM morning show in Philadelphia to ever be successful and be number one. And it was like, wow (laughs) And, and they didn't know why it worked and so the great gift that i was given was nobody understands why they're listening to harvey don't anybody talk to him don't make eye contact let him do whatever the hell he wants oh my god the greatest thing that ever happened was they were so scared of screwing it up that they just let me have it and i got to create my own show. And it lasted and as long as it lasted until the ratings went in the tank. And then they fired me and I got another show and that lasted for another eight and a half years there. And it did great and was a success until it wasn't anymore. Like, you know, up and down, up and down. And then they fired me and, and then that was it for radio and I couldn't get arrested in radio anymore. And I worked another 11 years in television. Um, because i started to work in tv along the way doing the radio show and then because you know radio guys they're never satisfied with just being on the radio they want to be on tv because that's Mm -hmm. the good thing right so um i started working locally in philadelphia for a show that was called evening magazine it was a westinghouse owned property it was called what was it called Around the country, it was an evening. PM, it was called PM Magazine. I worked on that for four years. Once a week, I wrote a humor column, just a funny essay that I delivered, kind of like what Andy Rooney used to do for 60 Minutes. And after four years, I mean, it was really fun, and I learned a lot. But, oh, my God, after four years, it's like, uh, I can't think of anything funny anymore. I don't know how people who did it for 15 20 years do it so now when, was- when you were going through
1: through all these ups and downs of radio like were you living like the starving artist kind of life like
0: were you living like bare minimum or did, were you able to survive pretty well on that no i stumbled into early success like mm-hmm. i said nobody understood mm-hmm. why it worked <laughs> and you know, I star- I started as the starving artist because I had no, I, I had no uh, leverage. I couldn't negotiate anything because it was like they were throwing me a bone. Can you get up early? Here's the morning show. Then it turns into a big ratings getter and all of a sudden everybody's listening and they're putting up billboards with my face and name and blah, blah, blah. And so all of a sudden, you know, everybody knew, you know, Harvey in the morning and then then you can, um, throw your weight around a little bit. And and I started to get paid reasonably well. And, and right before they fired me, I was getting paid really well, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is a good time to be getting paid because they're going to about to give you a severance check, which is based on your salary at the time. So half of a lot is a lot better than half of a lot. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I stumbled into the success, and and when I went to the second show, I used to sort of have this line where I said, I've clawed my way to the middle, and I'm not giving it up because I never, ever wanted to be number one again. Because when you're number one, uh, there's a target on your back, and everybody aims for you, and they make it their mission to take you down and in not such nice ways. I mean, it seems quaint and stupid in the post-Howard Stern morning zoo world, but I was honestly astonished and deeply hurt when other morning guys started attacking me and making fun of me and using really mean nicknames. It was just not in my world, and I thought I would never do that. And it really hurt my feelings and it sh- it shook my confidence a bit too, I got to tell you. And so that's what number one gives you is like the target right on your back. So the second show... I was very solidly in the upper middle and the station made a ton of money. I made a lot of money and I was really happy there. I didn't want to be number one. I wanted to be that solid performer cause I just thought it would, it might last longer. And I mean, I got eight and a half years out of it. So that was, that's pretty long. So. I'm yeah, sure. Not shabby at all. Yeah. But,
2: so when Double Dare came around i know like when you got the offer it was just like you're on the side you're doing an announcing that's all you're doing right but how long did it take before they said well
0: let's see what you can do in front of the camera in certain situations and again another incredibly lucky uh break when when double dare came into philadelphia to shoot they they were shooting nickelodeon decided to shoot in philadelphia because it was cheaper than shooting it in new york and again, to save money, if they brought in the, you know, an announcer voiceover person from New York city, they'd have to put him up in a hotel. You hire a local dude who just coincidentally just been fired from his first radio show, <laughs> you hire a local guy, he drives into work. We don't have to give him a hotel. So they, uh, one of the production assistants was a listener of mine and she contacted me. And said, "Here's the show. Here's what it is. It's coming into town. They're looking for the announcer. Do you want to, you know, audition?" I said, "Sure." I put together a cassette tape and gave it to her, and they hired me. And I remember at that point, I I tried negotiating. I tried. I I said, "I'd really like this to be uh, covered under AFTRA, the the union, right? right. Because mm-hmm. you, you know, you get." points and it goes toward your pension, blah, blah, blah. And the, the answer came back within minutes, tell him if he needs it to be union, we'll cast around him. And I went, (laughs) "Oh, Oh, no problem. I'm happy to work as a scab. Where do I sign? because i i had nothing at that point i'd sure. been fired and mm. the chance to do this little tv show was was great my only concern and i talked about this recently um with mark and robin we were doing something my only concern was i didn't want it to be exploiting kids you know what i mean like mm. making them feel bad about losing or focusing them on the prizes and turning them into little monster consumers. I didn't want to be part of that. I just, you know, I had what they used to call in the business ethics. (laughs) (laughs) What are those? What are those? Yeah, I know, Mm. But, but I didn't want to be part of that. So I, you know, I looked into it a little bit and then, you know, accepted the gig and we started and within, I don't know, 20 episodes, I went, Oh my God, the kids don't give a crap about the prizes. They just want to play the game. It's just all about the fun and the chance to break the rule of staying clean and neat and getting mm. slime thrown at you. So with we did the first 65 shows. It was a very slow startup because it's a pretty com- it looks simple. It's very complex. What Mark Summers does hosting that show, Keeping all the scores in his head, the kids' names, who's blue, who's red, who's ahead, who's made a comeback, what round we're in, all of that's floating around in the head all, all the time you're trying to smile and be personable and, and occasionally funny. And so, he, you know, he had a lot of experience with game shows. I had zero. Um, and I, But, I mean, Mark will be the first to tell you that he wasn't all that great when we started because he overwhelmed oh my god it's an incredibly hard thing to do so the first 30 shows we're just hanging on for dear life somewhere in those first 65 though toward the middle toward the you know the last 30 or so episodes one of the producers or directors i guess they found out that i'd worked in television before and and done local television in four years um hosting my humor piece on evening magazine and he threw me a bone he just gave me a little bit to do and and they saw that i didn't stink up the room and that i didn't look like you know god bless them what some radio people look like when they go on television (laughs) and their bodies are out of control and they don't know where to look and it's just like it's very uncomfortable so i i didn't stink up the room they threw me another little bit they threw me a few quick on-camera things the second set of 65 episodes they started working me in and by the end of that second flight of 65 which came pretty fast because the show was pretty much an instant hit we knew before we were finished shooting the first 65 it had been airing for a couple of weeks when we were wrapping up the last 20 or so episodes yeah i was gonna I was going to ask you, like sixty-five
1: nowadays sounds like so I so know. much television. What know. what was that like production schedule actually like? Were you filming multiple ep- episodes a day or we, every day
0: when, or? Once we finally got it, we would we would shoot for about four weeks. Once we got the hang of it and got up to speed, we'd shoot for four weeks, and we would get up to five shows a day. Wow! And so we would shoot. The upfronts, what they call it, you know, the question and answer yep. part. Sometimes we'd do two games of the question and answer, and then we'd shoot a couple of obstacle courses because the obstacle course takes some time to clean up after. Sure, the upfront game took some time too because there was a lot of slop and crap flying around in the uh, physical challenge sections. But we would do five um, in a day, and that's a lot. And that allowed us to bang out those 65. And that 65 was, I think that was 13 weeks. That was considered a flight of, of, you know, first run shows, non reruns, five shows, five shows a week, you'd eat them up. Mm -hmm. So every day you'd shoot a week of shows, um, once we got up to speed. And so then we would, after, I don't know, a couple of months on hiatus, We came back again and did 65 more because all of a sudden they had a hit on their hands and they did not want to let that languish. And so, you know, in that second flight of 65, I had begun to worm my way into being not just the off camera, never seen, you would never know who I was guy, but the goofy sidekick that they would throw i said i i told him i think in the end of the first season when they started to use me i said here's my i'm a very low maintenance star you'll come to find that out but here's my rule if it's going to be on the show i will jump into anything i will cover myself with absolutely anything you got." throw it at me if it's just for the amusement of the crew i'm not into it i'm not going to do it (laughs) but if it's on the show i will do anything you want and they liked that you know adventurous attitude i was young and stupid and so they would throw me stuff to do and we'd test them out right there and it was so much fun and and we talked about the other, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago when we did another show, we talked about why we thought that it worked. And I really believe it was because it was real. It was authentic. We grew to really like each other. Me, Mark, and Robin, we still talk, you know, how many years later is this? 35 plus. I mean, And, and we still talk to each other. We still text back and forth. We care about each other's lives. we, when you're in the trenches in something that becomes wildly out of control as hit shows do, I mean, you're hanging on for the ride and there's a lot of forces that are going to come flying at you. The temptation to over do it you know to replicate it too many times the the temptation to think that you're really great stuff because you happen to be lucky and get on a hit all kinds of things can screw you up and make you mishandle this golden opportunity of being lucky enough to land on a hit show and so we really we're all in it together and it were you know in large part the directors, the producers, and Mark Summers. Mark is a very generous performer and he's the guy. And now it's a secret that he knows it makes him look better. And that's the truth. Cause you know, having been a host of a lot of stuff, when you have people around you and you involve those people, You have stuff to react to. You have stuff to bounce off of. It does make you look better, but he was very generous. Some, some hosts are not at all inclined to be generous. It's all my show. Don't get, don't get in the way of my FaceTime. It's all about me. And Mark would go, Hey, Harvey, what do you think about, you know what I mean? And he'd throw it to me. So that really, really made me able to have an impact on a kid's TV show that you know, when when I mean, Mark is the star, he was on every second of the show, but they saw enough of me that they knew it was, you know, Mark and Harvey and Mark and Harvey and Robin because Robin was a continuous uh presence on the stage helping out Mark with all the setup and stuff. And we would bust on each other. We would do the live touring and we'd play, you know, it started at shopping malls and then it ended up in fifteen and twenty thousand seat arenas playing the, you know, twenty thousand screaming kids going pick me, pick me. And as a former uh wannabe rock star if I closed my eyes, it was the dream. 20,000 seats, <laughs> a big arena, all screaming, Hey, Harvey, hey, Harvey. Now they were screaming, Throw a pie in my face, not here's my hotel room. And I'm yeah, right, right. a three year old. <laughs> These kids were like, you know, eight or 10. And so the dream had to be modified significantly to stay out of jail, but it was still the same. It was the weird side version of the dream of all these kids screaming at you. And, uh, you know, when, we would tour and do those live events. Mark did the majority of the shows, but he's one guy and he would, you know, he would, if it was east of the Mississippi sometimes in a city, because Mark lived in California, uh, you know, he would say, let Harvey uh, host uh, ho- those shows, those live shows. So it would be me and Robin. And I, now I loved it because it gave me a chance to actually host the show and do the sure. live yeah. version of it. But it's a little tricky because you know how it is when. Uh, I'm sorry, Lin-Manuel Miranda will not be appearing this evening. <laughs> yeah. <In> his place <laughs> is <Yeah>. Harvey. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, not, not the best news, but because they knew me and sort of liked me anyway, I got away with it. And they they were just happy to be there and, you know, trying to play the games on stage. And it was an unbelievable. We got so many opportunities to have that experience of you know just a a fantastic successful hit show one time we did central park in new york and it was just me and mark and i mean i, I don't know there were 15 to 20,000 kids in central park that had gathered wow. to see us do a live appearance for a half an hour 45 minutes whatever and we get back in, we're rushed back by security guards rushed back into the limousine and i get in to the the limo and Mark looks at me and we just burst out laughing and Mark says, Hey, where are the freaking uh, Beatles? And I went, no, Mark, more accurately, we're the freaking monkeys, but close <laughs> enough. <laughs> you, you know, it was, it was kind of the experience of having people rush you and security guards getting you into a car. It was just like something I never thought I'd ever have. Um, Cause I never, I, again, no motivation, no plan. I'd never, I would, I wouldn't move to New York. I wouldn't move to LA. That's what has to happen to be successful in the business. Mm. Honestly, you got to move to LA. You got to yep. go to work mm. at least New York, but you definitely need to go to LA because that's where television is. It's where all the shows are done. You, you want to be a TV guy, go to where they make TV shows. Don't live in Philadelphia, but they, they came huh. here and I jumped on and hung on for dear life. You talk about moving, um, I rem- the,
2: I remember the show moved down to Florida when they opened up Nickelodeon Studios, I'm, I just saw a recent uh, video about it and I read that um, like certain shows they didn't, they weren't keen to it because they were basically having tours like right in the dressing rooms, right on top of everybody and stuff like that. I was wondering if you experienced kind of like the same thing from recording there.
0: I experienced a a chance of a lifetime when we went to Universal, honest to God, again, living the dream. I mean, i I was on back on the radio in Philadelphia, so when we would go to Florida, we'd go down to Orlando for a month and we'd shoot sixty five episodes. And so I would get up at about four in the morning and I'd drive my little rental car to a radio studio, and I'd do my radio show from 5.30 until 9 o'clock back up to Philadelphia, right? then I'd hop in the rental, and I'd drive over to Universal, and we'd start shooting at mm, 9.30, o'clock, and we'd shoot until 6.30 or 7. We'd test some stunts for the next day's, uh, series of shows. We'd go out to dinner. I'd go home and crash in the uh, rental apartment that I had for the four weeks. And I'd get up at four o'clock in, the next morning and I'd do it all over again. And I did it for four weeks. At the end of the four weeks, of course, I was really exhausted, but it was such an intense experience. And I got to tell you, it's like I'm living in, in a nice, you know, rented apartment. I'm driving my lovely rental car onto the Universal Studios lot. So it looks just like a movie studio lot. And there's a gate and a guarded gatehouse. And there's a guard. And I drive up to the gate and the guard comes out and says, good morning, Harvey. And he lifts the gate. And I drive through the gate into the movie studio lot setting. And I pull up into my parking space that says, Harvey on it. And I go inside to my dressing room, which has a little paper star that says Harvey on it. Oh my God. Does it get any better than that? Again, living the dream without ever having to do any work or pursue the dream. It just just fell on me. And I was having the television studio in California experience just going down to humid, stinky giant bugs, Florida for a month at a time. Um, it it was really a lot of fun. It was exhausting, of course, because I'm doing two jobs and blah, blah, yeah. blah. But it was it was just so great to be able to be part of it. And and I was until the very last 40 episodes that they shot. My it was nineteen ninety-two. My son had just been born. And when they announced the the production, it it wasn't known that that was going to be the last shows that we did, Mm -hmm. but I knew when they were going to happen and they were going to happen very close to the time that my son was due to be born. And I thought, God, this kills me because I wanted to be there because I'd been there for every single episode, but I just said, I can't do it and i passed on it and they hired somebody from orlando a radio guy to do it and they flew me down and i i did a couple of walk-ons on some of those episodes with my son who was a month old and he fit on my arm between my elbow and my wrist he's he's six four now but back then <laughs> he fit on my forearm yeah. and i walked on and they you know they flew me down to do that and that was nice but it it killed me a little bit to like be on the outside looking in and, and then it was over. And so it, it was near the end. And I, I did the right thing deciding to stay home with my newborn son. Um, but it was, it, it made me a little sad to miss that, that last bit of it. But I, did, I did all the rest of it up till then and experienced it all. And it was just a, a once in a lifetime. It, I, uh, you know i had success in radio but that was local um and i've never had success like that on a show where i was on camera i had mm-hmm. one more uh shot at a really successful show but on the production side i after you know after i was, i was well i was about 50 years old and i know you're gonna be shocked but the offers for 50 year old bald guys suddenly dry up and (laughs) and so i just couldn't get work anymore as you know on camera and so they were doing a show out of philadelphia the production company was philly based and it was uh, trading spaces and i i joined them thinking it would crush my soul and then i would hate going to work every day but i needed the work and so i agreed to do it first as the location scout and casting director for the homeowners it was the the show premise was a thousand bucks two sets of neighbors you swap houses for three days you redecorate a room you walk in with your eyes closed you open your eyes 85 percent of the time you loved the room 10 or 15 percent of the time you hated the room but i i started out you know scouting and casting the homeowners and ended up um as the supervising producer the second in command and running three different versions of the show and then finally the showrunner for the kid version and it was not soul destroying at all i had two wonderful exec producers who were great bosses i had so much fun i loved my work again and as a w- as a way to end my 35 year broadcast career it was a really great way to just sort of bring it in for a landing. And when, and at the end of seven years of doing trading spaces, um, when they yanked it from the Philadelphia based production company and gave it to an LA, uh, company, I thought, well, okay, now I'm 55. I've been doing this almost 35 years. Mm. I could go to New York and scare up a gig. I'm sure I got enough experience. Do I want to do that? And it was like, Mm. no, I've gotten to do absolutely everything i ever dreamed of and i couldn't i would never have predicted it would have been this easy a decision it was like so easy to go "Ah, let the kids do it
1: Yeah, yeah i
0: didn't have anything else in my bucket list i i you know there wasn't anything left that i wanted to do that i hadn't gotten a taste of and i went this is so easy and i just walked away and i never missed it so
1: no, no. You kind of segued into a question I wanted to wanted to ask you. With, with success in radio, success in in television, um, how, what is your outlook now? Where people have the opportunity to fire up a podcast like we're on right now yeah, within yeah. seconds, and to have video, you know technology within their hands and be able to produce and put things out, whatever content they want, their own channels. I'm curious as a guy who has been through kind of it all, like what your vision is on that. And, and also like, are you a little jealous or do you see that as like an amazing thing?
0: I'm just curious what you, how you see that. That's a, that's a good and interesting question. I mean, it's, it's both things. I mean, I'm sitting in my home studio. Right. I, I uh, you know, I produce and record in my home studio. My main client is a guy named John Flynn, who's a singer-songwriter. He's been doing it 45 years. Um, I've been working with him for the last 12 years, and we've done seven albums together. Now, I, you know, I have... In my computer that I'm staring into, I have Pro Tools, which is the recording software. Yep. Uh, I have good microphones. I designed this room, and it's pretty acoustically uh, nice. And I can I can record anything. And over these twelve years. I've learned a lot more about how you, it's always been a great mystery to me recording. I've tried to do it since I was in high school. My father had a reel to reel and I would record stuff and it would sound like crap. And then I got a four track reel to reel and I would record stuff and it would sound like crap. And then I, you know, got an eight track reel to reel based system and I would record stuff and it sounded like woodenish ish crap. Yeah. And it was always yeah. like, what, 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 what is it? And, I don't know. I don't have the answer, but this is a long way of getting to the good news is everyone can make a record. The bad news is everyone can make a record. record. (laughs) And they do. Somebody who used to be a record promo guy, the guy who used to walk in with vinyl under his arm to the program directors in radio stations and go, here's this band called cheap trick. You really need to add this record because these guys are good. Or there's this new guy from Florida named Tom Petty. You really should listen to this. He's good. That's how it used to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, he told me that on Spotify in a single day, there's something like 71,000 uploads every day of new songs. I think there might've been 71,000 new songs in a year when i was working in radio sure so it's like there's a deluge so the good news is that it's completely democratized and every there's no gatekeeper for the most part anymore it's like you know i sit here there's a camera in front of me on my computer and the only thing keeping me from doing a little podcast or TV show or being an influencer mm-hmm. is the fact that I have no plans and no vision and n- no motivation and no gumption. And so I just <laughs> sit here and I work in my studio. <laughs> so it's the great equalizer. Everybody's got access. And that's, that's an interesting concept. And in, in general, I'm in favor of like that. However, the gatekeepers did serve a purpose in that all those Folks who were really awful, they wouldn't get to be heard because somebody said they're not good enough. Now, in that group that people said were not good enough, were a lot of people that were good enough and just got turned down. John Grisham got turned down by like 15 publishers before somebody finally said, I think this might be the most successful American author in history. Let's sign him up. Oh, you think so? There were the other 15, right? No, not, not likely. So the gatekeepers aren't always right. They make mistakes, but they do keep an inordinate tsunami of crapola from bombarding you. There's so much to wade through. How do you rise above it? you know, the kids use the <laughs> YouTube and wh- whatever, you know, it's like a very different pathway to th- now get noticed. And it cracks me up uh, having started in radio, been incredibly jealous of television, wanting to be on TV, finally making that happen, et cetera, et cetera. Now, every big movie and TV star wants to do a podcast. Sure. Which is, <laughs> no. After all, a little radio show yep. mm. and so all of a sudden, radio shows are the hottest thing in the world are you kidding me oh my god i never would have thought that would have come around full circle
1: i'm still old school i still enjoy audio listen to people audio then watching them like i know everyone videos it now but i'm still there's something about yeah. the audio experience i don't know
0: There is something about that. Well, I remember when I was working for trading spaces and I would be traveling around the country and I'd be in a -a rent-a-car and it was my first time being exposed to satellite radio. It was just happening, you know, and Sirius Sirius and XM were two separate entities back then competing, blah, blah, blah. I heard satellite radio in a -a rent-a-car and I went, well, that's it terrestrial radios dead. This is going to kill them mm-hmm. within six months. Could I have been more wrong about that? It isn't. It's not dead. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure exactly why, because God knows it's not the subscription barrier. If you look at my visa bill, I have so many damn yep. subscription yep. Hulu and, <laughs> you know, uh, Paramount plus and everything in the world. And you forget about them and it's like, oh, a free month. Sign me up. And then boom, boom, boom. <laughs> it's like, so satellite radio is just another hit on your card. So it's not quite that. I'm not sure. But, you know, land based radio still survives, although in a very different way, because it's it's every radio station is owned by four companies, you know, and all the solutions come from the top down. It worked in Tampa. It worked in Buffalo, you know, super force feed it and inject it into Cincinnati and we'll have a hit radio show that nobody in you know now i am going to sound old but in the mid 70s late 70s when we were trying to find a way to compete in philadelphia against the two big guns were wmmr and wisp two (laughs) huge album rock stations who were there years before ioq got in the game so we're trying to come up with a way to compete and we we almost always came in third occasionally second never first but ioq was always second or third but the reason we made a great living was we were the station breaking new acts we were the ones that they went to and when they said you know we want you to play this band dire straits we think they're great and we would play them and we would be the one the station that broke them and because of that the record companies and concert companies gave us a ton of money to, you know, to buy ads, to advertise their concerts and their new artists on record. And so we survived really well because we had this niche of, we would take the chance and go out first on, on new artists that then became big hit artists but we decided, and I decided, like, for my morning show, how do I do this? And I would, I just, I copied Johnny Carson. I copied Letterman like crazy. I copied old guys like um, Steve Allen and Ernie Kovacs, who just did absurd stuff. I just would, and all the comedians that I was playing, I would copy anybody and then try to steal but make it my own rather than just steal outright and unfortunately that just doesn't Happen anymore, and there isn't really a farm system for developing talent from the mm. local level. It used to be you started and you were in the one hundred and fiftieth biggest market, and then you'd move up to one twenty five and then a hundred and then eighty, and you'd move up and then your goal was to be in a top ten market that was Nirvana, that was it. Well, again, incredibly lucky break. I was born in what was then the number four market in the country, Philadelphia. I got lucky and I got success and I never had to pay my dues and work in market 200, you know, out in the hinterlands and work my way up. I did all the working my way up by playing Kung Fu fighting at three in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) So I suffered. Don't make no mistake. I suffered for my art, but but I ended up in Philadelphia, so that that was another really lucky uh break and so it, it's like the consolidation of ownership has really i think sort of homogenized i I used to look forward to traveling for work because then I could listen to other stations instead of just listening to um, radio stations in Philadelphia and somewhere no 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 in the early 2000s 2005 or whatever i went oh my god nobody sounds any different anymore they all sound exactly the same in whatever state i was in whatever city i was in they all sounded the same and that was sad and i just uh, you know i stopped listening to radio just because it's like I have a really high need to be amazed and surprised. I want that's why I loved Letterman. That's why I loved Carson because they would work without a net and they would they would do stuff where they didn't know where it was going to end up. They would just wander in really bravely and they'd see where this line of conversation is going to go and and it was like that was what I really aspired to was to have that kind of courage to not know where I'm going and to just follow it. And sometimes it just failed miserably and we wouldn't save it at the end and it would not pay off. And sometimes it would pay off brilliantly. And I was fine with that. My program directors were not fine with that. And it was a constant battle because they wanted to know ahead of time, whether it was going to work or not. I went now, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. That's not how I work. I got to. Otherwise, I'll be so bored. I'll fall asleep. I have to be a little scared for 4 hours every day 5 days a week right. or I'm going to do a crappy show if I'm not scared because if I'm scared I'm interested and I'm engaged in what we're doing and if I'm not challenging myself and doing stuff that's a little risky I'm not talking about you know insulting filthy I just never worked that way but I did try to go for unexpected so I consequently I have a high need to be amazed and dazzled and you know, for the last 20 years, radio has been unable to amaze and dazzle me, and I just don't listen, and I get it elsewhere, you know. Great movies, comedians, TV shows, 30 Rock. I'm I'm watching it for like the fifth time. It, it amazes and dazzles me. It's like people make fun of me because I really like watching shows that I love. The West Wing is one of – it's got to be in my top – three favorite things that have ever happened tv music radio whatever it is the west wing is right up there i've probably seen it eight times it's like a song i know what's coming right i Mm. i know where the camera's going to know the beats yeah i do know the beats and i know the writing and i'm i love great writing and it doesn't matter because it's like listening to a really great song you go along with it it's there you're getting set up I fool myself. I wonder where this is going to end up. And then, boom. And then they bring it home and it's like, oh, and I cry at the end of every West Wing. I just watched one before I talked to you guys tonight. And eighth time, ninth time through, I cried at the end. I always (laughs) cry at the end of every West Wing if they're really good. There are a few that I didn't, but for like 90% of them. I, I love to be amazed and dazzled. So it's like standups. I, when I know I tr- tried hosting comedy shows, so I know how hard it is to do standup. Oh, yeah. So when standups have that unique view, that brilliant sort of quirky, Oh my God, how did he th- or she think of that? I just, I I love a re- a really good standup. I love comedy in general. The study of comedy and why things are funny has always fascinated me. And stand-ups are brave souls. They're very weird. They're not going to be your best friend or your husband or your wife because you're going to kill them. But, oh, my God, are they artists. Are they gifted if they're good at it? Man, it's magic. Mm.
2: Harvey, uh, we appreciate talking to you, hearing your story. It, it's almost, I, I almost compared to Forrest Gump where it's like, it's not knowing where the dream is going. It's just ending up at the dream, your story. And we're really happy for everything that happened to you and being a part of our childhood. Uh, mm-hmm. I know now that you're a handyman now, uh, do you want to promote your site or if people want to talk to you, we're good places to go.
0: Well, I- you know, I've done the handyman I've been Harvey the handyman for almost 17 years, and it was kind of a lark at first. When I walked away from broadcast, I I didn't know what was next. I know that's going to shock you that I didn't have a plan. <laughs> but um, and my one of my best friends. Kind of said as a joke, hey, why don't you be a handyman? Because I'm self-taught. I built three or four additions on my own, um, houses, uh, and learned how to do it. And so I started slowly working for friends. And then I thought, oh man, nobody's going to trust a guy who calls himself a handyman who shows up in a Subaru Forester with a bunch of home <laughs> Depot buckets in the back. So I bought a truck. I designed a logo. I put signs on the truck, did a website and tried to make myself look legit And, um, it, it was a wonderful way to make a living. I got to say, um, I discovered early on that there's a big demand for the work. Somebody who's reliable, not creepy, and you can let them in your house and it will actually do a good job. There was a high demand for that kind of work. And so I got very picky with customers. And I in the beginning I took anybody and I lowballed, you know, and it's like, oh, I can do it for $40. And it was like I quickly changed that. And I would pick and choose the customers. I got a whiff that they didn't like, you know, there's something about you know, something that somebody had done in their house that they, they'd find a the one thing that they didn't like. And they'd always complain about it. I would fire that person in a nice way without them ever knowing it. I'd say like, you'd be better served by another contractor. So consequently for 15 of those 17 years, I was working for nothing but nice people. I never got paid up front. It was all done. I had no leverage. I would give them an invoice a couple of days after I finished everybody paid me, never been stiffed. Um, and my days were stress free. I got stressed four or five times in 15 years. I was stressed four or five times before lunch, every (laughs) single day working in television, but it was just no stress. I was my own boss. I went to work when I felt like it. I went to work at 10 30 quarter of 11 in the morning. I worked till I was done. The day flew by and I loved being my own boss. And I've sort of, I can't, Face the uh, concept of saying that I'm closing the business because it's it's just physically good for me to carry 80 pound bags of you know mortar and mm-hmm. drywall up two flights of stairs, but I've really slowed it down. I haven't taken on new customers in a couple of years. And so I'm I'm just, I'm finally to the point where I don't have a whole list on the bottom of my computer of people that are waiting for me to show up. I'll take work if I want it. If the job really appeals to me, I might do it. Most of the time I'm going to say no these days because I kind of like the more relaxed pace. So it's like, you know i'm i'm in that that sweet spot you know where i can work if i want and not work if i don't want it's like how lucky is that Mm. (laughs) so i don't miss it i I don't really miss showbiz i get enough of it i love doing theater i try to be in one or two plays a year um and that really satisfies me and so you know that's my life these days that's awesome Harvey, thank you so much for the time. We hope you keep on living the dream and more adventures come to you for many years to come. Well, th- thanks, you guys, for asking me to be on the show. I, really, I appreciate that. Too. Yeah, Harvey, this was great. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. John, Harvey,
1: everybody. Um, Mike, which Double Dare game did you always want to be on? Everyone had that one they wanted to do. Which one? The obstacle course? Yeah, any, uh, any, any Yeah. Any part of it.
2: Uh, I would probably say I'd like the uh, one where you had to climb up the slippery slide where people would have to then come down the spiraling uh,
1: slide. Uh, <laughs> there was two slides to it. What can I look, tell look you? Look at Mike holding on so, A- <laughs> so AI is not like... Don't yeah. demo me. Don't my <laughs> no. Good. Don't do it. Don't do it, Lou <laughs> and I like the slippery, slippery slide. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was made up of two slides, so there was, the was. general yes. direct down slide where they would have uh, like gook in the middle, so you had to hold on to the rails, and then you would come down a spiral slide into some kind of mess. That was always my favorite event. The one that always irritated me was uh, finding the flag in the pancake because it always seemed like that was the one people took like. 45 seconds yeah. to find the damn flag it's like just flip the butter damn it
1: i ironically as a man who hates dentists i always wanted to do that mouth like where they had to fly Ooh. and find the it was like the gunked up mouth like yeah <laughs> you had to dive through the teeth yeah like,
2: it was always <laughs> the last one too where yeah. like they yep. had to literally fly through the air through the teeth and jump up to get that flag it was always <laughs> like the eighth obstacle
1: Ironically, that one always... Uh, it always spoke to me, I guess. Uh, mm. But, uh, yeah, John... The big teeth and all, star. Yeah. do you <laughs> John... want to jump into me? John Harvey, everybody. John Harvey. Um, okay. Mike, we are at the the final four of mm. this tournament. We're now at Hele versus Little Richard. Ooh. Um, you have... You have basically you have three more picks to go flawless in the entire tournament. Mm-hmm. What you got
2: this one is tough. This is this is kind of like the mid rounds with God complex where you're like, damn, I don't want to make a pick here, but yeah,
1: this is my futuristic way of putting the tournament back on you. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, maybe one of these days like, you make your own bracket and then I could do it, but still,
1: no, nah, that's not gonna happen. Yeah,
2: that's true. You're lazy. Um i mean are you so it's gonna be like some kind of rock and roll soccer field of some <laughs> sort. um yeah okay i mean this is the way it, it's trending to be i'm going my brain is saying one thing but i gotta go with my gut i mean the brain's still going with pele so athletic but there's something about the attitude of little Richard where I just feel he's like, no, I ain't going down like this. I'm going to get kicked around by some little boy in shorts and all kicking a ball. So I'm going with little Richard.
1: All right. Now they did not give a setting here. AI really? not give... They said the fight begins with a soccer match on the field. Oh, where Pele showcases his unparalleled skill and ability. Once again, dribbling past defenders and scoring goals. Little Richard, though not known for his prowess on the soccer field, surprises everyone with his natural athleticism and determination. With flashy footwork and unexpected move, Little Richard manages to hold his own against Pele, even scoring a few impressive goals of his own. Mm. However, Pele's mastery of the game ultimately proves too much to overcome, and he secures a victory in the soccer showdown. Huh? following the soccer match the competition transitions to a musical battle on stage little Richard fueled by his passion for rock and roll wo- rock and roll takes centered stage electrifying the crowd with his dynamic performance and infectious energy of course that's why I brought him back mm-hmm. um, he belts out hit after hit commanding the audience's attention with his powerful voice and charismatic stage presence not to be outdone Pele surprises everyone by showcasing his hidden talent for music. With a guitar in hand, he strums out catchy melodies and sings soulful tunes, demonstrating a side of himself rarely seen by the public. As the musical battle heats up, the crowd finds themselves torn between two incredible performances, each representing a different aspect of entertainment. Now, Mike, you got Pele ripping musical solos and you got Little Richard playing soccer well. How are you feeling about this?
2: I I feel like Pele would be more like a Calypso star than like a soulful singer, you know? Oh. Um,
1: he's destroying the audience, apparently.
2: I mean, he's back and forth. I mean, just the fact that Little Richard's like, oh, you don't think I can kick a ball? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of interesting right there. So we're even Keel and all, so I'm kind of interested in how this goes. Now I know Ty is an option.
1: Yep. In a surprising turn of events, Pele and Little Richard come together for a unifying finale that transcends the competition. Recognizing each other's talents and mutual respect, they join forces to deliver a captivating performance that combines the best of soccer and rock and roll. With Pele's rhythmic guitar playing and Little Richard's soulful vocals, they create a moment of harmony and celebration, ringing the crowd to their feet in applause. They I t- would go to that concert, though. They tied. Little Richard uh, and Pele tied, Mike. Now, I did not know tie was an option either. I even asked AI, give me a result, and they said tie.
2: <laughs> it is technically a result.
1: <laughs> it, it is. They invented
2: AI for that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mike okay. who do right. got I mean I decided a winner here um, and then I asked AI choose between the two who would win and did finally spit out a winner who do you think won
2: I I, I just got to keep with the guts man I think no matter what happens little Richard's going to have that sassy just determined attitude you ain't going to outdo me kind of Bravado, if you will. So uh little richer advances.
1: Mike, this is where your hot streak ends. Aww. This ends. The winner, according to AI, after I asked them three different times, uh Pele was the winner. Pele was the winner. Mike, you you, you had you had it all. You had it all. Yeah. And even your loss now is in like the hands of like judges and refs, and it's going to be debated for years to yeah. come. So there's, I think you're okay with this
2: one. There's an asterisk in there. I mean, literally, it told the story. One make a winner, and then you had to ask it like sometimes seriously flip the damn coin. So yeah, I, I still feel good about my choice.
1: You basically went to like PKs, and then it went to like ten PKs. We're like, well, yeah, this doesn't prove any. Yeah, yeah, actual winner but you're not the true winner it just happened this way all right you have anthony bourdain versus tom petty
2: uh I that's just, I just straight tom petty i i mean he he lived the rock and roll lifestyle feel he's gone through enough things uh anthony bourdain he was a uh, Good person, but I don't think he was a man of much strength, if you will. So I'm going to say Tom Petty is going to win in this field of food and rock and roll, I would assume, is coming.
1: The confrontation begins with verbal jabs and taunts exchanged between Petty and Bourdain. Petty, with his rebellious rock star demeanor, launches scathing remarks at Bourdain, questions his culinary skills and adventurous spirit. Bourdain, quick and witted, sharp-tongued, fires back with his biting commentary on Petty's music and his persona. As tensions escalate, the confrontation turns physical. Petty, relying on his streetwise attitude and determination, charges at Bourdain with his fists clenched. Bourdain, though not known for his combat skills, surprises everyone with with his agility and resourcefulness. Using his surroundings to his advantage, Bourdain swiftly maneuvers ar- around Petty, delivering calculated strikes and effectively neutralizing Petty's attacks. Despite Petty's aggression, Bourdain's unexpected resilience and tactical approach give him the upper hand in the street fight. In a climactic moment, Bourdain seizes an opportunity to disarm Petty, Swiftly incapacitating him with a well-timed maneuver. Petty, though formidable, finds himself outmatched by Bourdain's strategic thinking and adaptability. The winner, Anthony Bourdain. Uh, I'm like that guy with the march madness
2: the first round. I'm like, yo, I got 60 points. I'm gonna coast and then get two the rest of the way.
1: Yeah. Um Bourdain, I do know, before he died, uh, was working on becoming a jujitsu-like black belt, so maybe that Mm. factored in. Um, Mike, you're down to the final two. You, You didn't get the whole tournament, but you have now Pele versus Anthony Bourdain. Who you got?
2: Well, these last few rounds have thrown me for a loop, so the obvious answer is Pele, so I might as well just turn the coin over and say Anthony Bourdain wins this tournament.
1: All right. Now, Mike, you said you think like a computer, so let's Mm -hmm. see if you think like a computer. The setting. This one gave me a setting. A lush tropical island serves oh. as a backdrop for an impromptu showdown between two iconic figures from different worlds the pristine beach provides a picturesque setting for the confrontation ahead with the sound of crashing waves adding to the intensity of the moment the fight begins with a soccer match on the sandy shores where Pele showcases unparalleled skill and agility Despite his lack of experience, Bourdain adapts quickly to the sandy terrain, utilizing his resourcefulness and unconventional tactics to keep up with Pele's formidable moves. However, Pele's mastery of the game ultimately proves too much to overcome and secures a victory in the soccer showdown. Mike, are you still going with Bourdain?
2: Got to go with what you uh, throw out there, yep. Okay.
1: A Round two was the gastronomic challenge. Following the soccer match, the competition transitions to a gastronomic battle where Bourdain feels more at home. Using the island's natural bounty, Bourdain showcases his culinary prowess whipping up mouth-watering dishes infused with exotic flavors and spices not to be outdone. Pele surprises everyone by channeling his creativity and passion into a culinary creation of his own. Drawing inspiration, inspiration from his Brazilian roots, he prepares dishes that pay homage to his cultural heritage impressing, impressing both judges and spectators alike. Mm. Mike, do you still feel confident?
2: Ride that horse till it dies. Let's go with it.
1: With the score tied, the confrontation reaches its climax as Pele and Bourdain face off in a physical showdown on the beach. <laughs> Naturally. Oh, of uh, course. Pele, with his athletic build and years of training, exudes confidence as he squares off against Bourdain, who relies on his agility and street-smart tactics. As the battle unfolds, Pele's sheer strength and agility give him the upper hand overpowering Bourdain's defenses and landing decisive blows. Despite Bourdain's resilience and determination, he finds himself outmatched by Pele's athletic prowess. The winner of the AI death tournament is Pele.
2: Hmm. Well, like I said, my, I, you, my mind was a computer and I went with my gut, so that was my problem.
1: It, 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 now, now, would you? Would you? How much would you pay for a ticket to see this tournament actually be carried out in real life?
2: Oh, I would. I would pay more than World Cup tickets. Uh, there is. There's no way. I mean, this amount of entertainment and <laughs> that's going on. L- little Richard.
1: Back. Little Richard in a ring, like, oh, you can't catch me. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah this is. Uh, this is what? epic. But Pele finds another win on their verbal shenanigans tournament chart. Yeah. With
2: my luck, like, in my area, I would get the Mean Gene-Anthony uh, Bourdain matchup, and I'd be like, <laughs>
1: son of a... In the Georgia uh, yeah. <laughs> the Georgia bracket is Bourdain versus Mean Gene ogrelin <laughs> oh, God damn it. I spent ten grand for this? But, Mike, uh, y- y- you started off hot, and y- you lost it, but uh, it's okay. A.I., once again, is superior to us. They analyzed our show, Um and then they took our tournament to the next level. So, um yeah, that, that's
2: why we're not coming up with any more ideas anymore. We're just gonna type into the computer and listen to what it spits out.
1: Yeah. Do you think, like in heaven or hell or wherever Pele is, he has all those awards? You, do you think he heard that tonight? And he was like, "Yes, yes." You know, another <laughs> one. Another one for me.
2: Yeah, he's just like sitting in a chair and then just magically a Verby shows up on his shelf and he's like, Yeah, I earned this one.
1: I always thought it's funny, like we when people die, like I had someone die in our close family ish uh this week. All right. I'm not putting thought... him in the tournament next year. Yeah, just... yeah, yeah. Hey, Uncle Uncle Joe? That's weird. <laughs> <you know. laughs> Um, no, well, I that, take Matthew Perry. No, nope. I, I always thought it was funny that like when people die, all of a sudden we think they they go up to heaven and they could hear all your thoughts. You know, like yeah. oh like um, you know, Mike, I'm thinking about Uncle Joe today. Like, oh he can hear me. Or can he see over me? Like oh yeah. All of a sudden we just put them in this like this sphere where they could just watch over us, it was just kind of weird. Like, you couldn't do that on earth. There you are. Like, do you ever think that? Like, oh, like grandma died, uh, Uncle Joe died. Now, you can hear my thoughts. like, why did we just make that up? Like, oh, now you can just be an observer.
2: Well, we love to think like all the good things at all when you're having a family gathering grandma's here in spirit and all when you're all having a good time on the holiday grandma's here sure. and all but we never, when they're like, they're always with us. We never think about the time we're like on the crapper yeah, and not thinking grandma's there. When you're, you're watching a, uh, an adult movie and you're thinking <laughs> of something like, grandma's there watching you, you know, yeah. we don't, we don't paint the full story. We only like the good parts. And all
1: that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, if you are watching that adult movie and grandma appears all of a sudden, you're like, "Oh no, no!" You yeah. know. Now yeah.
2: remember, I told the story how my dad took my mom and and my grandma to go see Deep Throw in the theater, so it's not uh, too far off of a uh, a yeah. tale, if you will. Yeah.
1: So for you, that's you know, you kind of experience. another day. Yeah. You no, know, grandma, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lesbian oh, stuff. Yeah, no, but. um It's time for us to go. Mike, anything to promote?
2: Uh, I'm going to promote Orange Theory Fitness. I go there at least four times a week. They, They have a great program there. They have fully trained coaches there to help you out, to make you understand what these exercises are, how they make you better, splat points which cut more fat, how to get more strength. I've been... Doing a uh, monthly challenge with them now to gain more muscle has been working great. They have uh, exercise bikes, they got uh, m- uh, rowers, treadmills, all the weights, great coaches, great social uh, camaraderie working out. If you're in your area, it's really worth a try. And the first time you work out is for free. So check out Orange Theory. Um, what is
1: their policy on smelly people?
2: Uh, one warning.
1: <laughs>
2: one morning and uh it's good enough
1: yep. Yeah, one yep. morning you're out um yep, yep. i will co- quickly promote a fundraiser that we are doing on uh march 32nd so 32 32nd yeah, 30 30 march 32nd yeah what would you say uh
2: there's 31 days in march
1: uh Twenty second. Jesus Christ. Yeah, twenty second. Not thirty second. Jesus Christ No fluency, Scott. Uh, a I was right. AI is gonna win after this episode. Twenty second. Um we're doing it at a restaurant in Randolph, um, Italian restaurant um called Caprice, I think is the name of it. I'm 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 doing burlo stuff right now. Um, but it's me, Mike Sicoli, and our friend uh Terry Hammer. Um come on out and supports the um uh, Morris Knowles lacrosse. Um, Morris Knowles girls lacrosse team. Um, it's it's fifty dollars for food and a show, um, and that's it. But you could come out on the thirty second, but uh, twenty seconds fine too. <laughs> it's okay, Scott. You'll get past it. Uh, Other other than that, I want to thank Harvey for coming on the show. We have a lot more stuff coming up. And, uh, guys, that's it. Life is funny. Laugh at it. Keep the wind at your back. I'm dumping all my bleach and putting prune juice in there.